first book of Samuel. I'm going to read a passage of scripture from Samuel. It's very, very good to be home. We had a great time, a great trip, and still trying to deal with jet lag. They say if you're moving forward, or I guess even backwards, depending on the hour change, it takes you a day for every hour. So it's a 10 hour difference. So it takes about 10 days to completely get recovered. You wake up at 3.30 in the morning, wide awake, and you want to go sleep at about three o'clock in the afternoon. So you got to fight against that. Praise God. So uh, we will pray that that is shortened in Jesus' name. So 1 Samuel, verse number 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city early, yearly, to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb, and her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, and therefore she wept and did not eat. This is the beginning background for Hannah's prayer, which is found in verse number 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thy handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. I want to speak for a few moments this morning on the right to be bitter or the right to be better. The right to be bitter or better. The right to be bitter or better. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word today. We ask that you would direct us and guide us. We give to you thanks in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. As I've stated Already, we journeyed on a pilgrimage to Israel, and we visited many, many sites in Israel. Some of them were very, very significant. We visited the southern steps of the temple. There's still a portion of the gate called Beautiful that you can see, and you can imagine, as Peter and John are going up to the temple, <clears throat> for that matter, you can imagine Jesus going in and out of the temple and spending time on those steps and talking to people in his ministry. So we enjoyed that. We spent a time of prayer there. We had opportunity to 
spent some time in the Sea of Galilee region where Jesus called Capernaum his hometown, which was also very impacting. Uh, Peter's hometown, we're able to visit the synagogue that is somewhat standing, at least the base of it, the, the bottom structure of it dates all the way back to the first century, which would have been in the Lord's day and may have since and other civilizations built on top of it. But a lot of what is there is the actual remaining stones. And so you can walk around the small city of Capernaum. You could stand on the Sea of Galilee and imagine Jesus passing by and saying to his disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, that he wanted to make them fishers of men and them dropping everything and following him. We had opportunity to go all the way to the northern part of Israel, which is Dan, to travel all the way to the southern portion of what would have been the tribes of Israel. So we went from Dan to Beersheba. We were able to visit Mount Hermon. We were able to visit the Jordan River. Just a lot of things that we were able to do in that particular trip. It was very, very uh, meaningful and very exciting. We visited many sites. One of the memorable sites that we visited, the first time I went to Israel, we did not go to this site, so this was something new for us. We went to a place called Shiloh. There, they don't pronounce it Shiloh, they pronounce it Shiloh, Shiloh. And Shiloh has a, an important aspect to its geographical location and also to its history. It's positioned on a very strategic route in Israel from the north to the south, and so it's on a north-south route. It's north of Jerusalem, and it was a route that connected the north part to the southern part, and so people traveled by. There was a very central <clears throat> location. They found remnants and uh, pottery, remnants of tools and pottery that date all the way back to the Canaanite period, so they know that in Shiloh there was a, a community, a village, dating prior to the children of Israel coming into the land of Israel. It's on a well-fortified uh, place. It's on a hill. And so not only is it on a major route, but it is elevated somewhat. And it was the first capital of Israel. When the Israelites moved into the land of the Promised Land, moved into uh, the Canaanites' land, this was the, the tribe of Ephraim, which was also Joshua's tribe. And so they established in Shiloh the capital. No longer would they need a tabernacle that was a movable tabernacle. In the wilderness, wherever the Spirit of the Lord and when the Spirit of the Lord moved, they would move that tabernacle. It was a central part of everything that they did. It was a part of their life. It was very mobile. And so they would tear it down, and they would move, and then they would set it back up, and they would organize all of their culture around the tabernacle. When they moved into the promised land, the time had come where they would not need to move a tabernacle around, but they could have a permanent resting place for it. So at Shiloh, Joshua established something that was more permanent. It was there in that particular place of Shiloh. Not only was it the first capital, but it was a land that was divided at Shiloh. They met together, all the tribes, the 12 tribes. 
And it was there that the land was divided. Lots were taken and organization was established. It was at Shiloh that they were sent out. And this particular site was the site of the tabernacle for 369 years. For a very, very long time, this was the place that people would gather together yearly and bring their sacrifices, spend time together. We have read in our passage of scripture that this was something yearly that they would do. They would go to worship and sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And so Samuel gives to us the chronicle of how that takes place, and he gives to us some of the principal characters, Hannah being one of them and Elkanah being another one of them. There's a lot of archaeology that is connected to this particular site. What is a tell in 2006 was confirmed when ancient inscriptions containing a prayer for the welfare of the residents of Shiloh was found from the fourth century. You may be asking, what is a tell? A tell is a place, usually it is somewhat mounded and particularly in the promised land, it's a cone-shaped kind of structure. And what happens is there is a original civilization and then another civilization comes conquers it and builds on top of it and in some of the locations there are seven and eight and in, in some cases there are even as many as 20 of civilizations that are built on top of the successive civilizations so at Megiddo there's like 20 civilizations going way way back to Canaanite period into the Israelite period and you could keep going Byzantine Greek Roman it stacks on itself they would stack on that and so it creates a, what they call a tell. It's a cone-shaped thing. And so archaeologists will go in those tells and they will cut it like a cake so that they can see the different lever, levels of civilization. And they found in this area of Shiloh, they found a tell and they found different layers. And in one of these layers, they knew that they were at the location of Shiloh because there was a mosaic in a Byzantine church which would have been during the time of the Crusaders, in which the inscription on the floor has a prayer for the welfare of the residents of Shiloh. So archaeologists knew that this, this is the location and this is the place. The tour guide that took us through this particular community, her father in the 80s devoted his entire life. He was living in the United States. He moved from the United States. He moved to the area of Shiloh, there is a small community there, and he set out to excavate and to work with archaeologists to determine if, in fact, this was the site where the tabernacle would have been built. They discovered in one of these areas uh, some pots, and they were very, very excited about discovering the pots because at the bottom of the pots there were some raisins, and they were preserved. So they were able to take the raisins and the pots and they were able to do some testing on them, date testing on them. And what they found is the date and the time frame of the raisins connected directly to the same time frame of the children of Israel coming into the promised land and setting up the community and setting up the tabernacle. So they knew they were in the right place. This was the place of Shiloh. And so they started trying to figure out and discover where the tabernacle might have rested. And they found in this particular uh, site, you can very, you can see it, 
It was, again, it was covered up by sediment because of, of ancient civilization being built on top of each other. And so they've excavated it all the way down to where you can see part of the rock walls. You can see part of the structure. And there is an area that is there that is exactly 100 by 50, which has a rock wall. The tabernacle at that period of time would have had a rock wall but not a structure above it that would have been a solid structure. It was much like the tabernacle that they carried with them from place to place, but this had more of a permanent residence, so it had rock walls. And you can see that 100 by 50 image sitting right there, and so they're very, very sure that this could have been, very well have been, based on all the archaeological evidence that has been found in 2006, was the most recent, that this would have been at Shiloh, this would have been the place where the tabernacle would have rested. This was the place that Hannah and Elkanah would come to, and every year they would come to worship and to sacrifice. Every year when they would come, they would see many of their friends and acquaintances. And Hannah is coming to this particular setting and this particular site, and she is coming with a, a, an attitude of, of heartbreak and difficulty. Her womb is barren, and her adversary is provoking her. And so, like many of us, Hannah was sure that she had the right to be bitter. Life hadn't been fair to her. And every day, she had these painful irritants that reminded her of her complaint. She was one of two wives of a man named Elkanah. The other wife, Panina, had children, but Anna had no children. And we know that in ancient Israel, having children meant something very, very valuable. In ancient Israel, they were very important. They were symbols of fulfillment. They were symbols of fertility. And in Hannah's case, her childlessness was a double burden because her rival kept provoking her. Not only was she barren, not only was she discouraged, but there was an adversary that was always picking at her, provoking her. And so year after year, Elkanah would take his family to Shiloh to worship at the tabernacle. And Hannah would meet her family and friends, and she was still childless. And there in her constant pain, and her difficulty. She could hardly bear her faith. We can understand today, sitting in the sanctuary, why Hannah felt bitter. She was denied something she wanted desperately. And so she had a right to be bitter. And like many of us, we could step forward and take a hold of the right of bitterness because life does not always go as expected. There are failed dreams. There are things that we reach for that don't quite measure up. In our mind and in our mentality, we have a certain expectation, and sometimes life doesn't equal that expectation. And so the right to be bitter is there. And Hannah certainly 
felt that. But I would like to caution us before we move on in her story and look at some other individuals that had every right to be bitter. Joseph had every right to be bitter. His brothers sold him into slavery. He was forgotten in a prison cell. But somehow in the midst of all that he experienced, he recognized and understood, I can either be bitter or I can be better. I can let things drown me. I can be in woe and anguish. Or I can recognize that somehow God's going to get the glory through all of this. This is the same conundrum that we face today. We can have issues with things that come our way and we can be better or we can be bitter. I'm coming to you today to tell you it's not the time to become bitter because there is nothing good that comes out of bitterness. A root of bitter springing up can defile many, but it's a time to be better. Joseph said, I recognize I'm in the plan of God. God's directing every footstep, and one of these days, I may not see it yet, but God is going to use me, and he's going to use my situation for his glory. If you find yourself facing difficulties and circumstances, recognize that God's got a better plan for you. We can look at Adam and Eve. It's in a place in which God has created the fruition and the fruit and the ability to multiply. And because of decisions that they make, there's a whole other set of circumstances in which difficulties come. And the ground is cursed. And now there is hard work. The, the fruitfulness that was supposed to take place still takes place, but it comes in pain and difficulty. And so there is this struggle. You can be bitter or you can be better. It is the adversary. It's the one that provokes to become bitter. The adversary, the enemy, someone close by, always wanting to provoke to bitterness. You can always find somebody that when you find yourself measuring up short, having failures, having difficulties, there always somebody that wants to provide the negativity and why you can't make it and it can't be done, and God can't do miracles. And yet, on the other hand, there's always somebody like a Joseph, and there's always somebody like a Job that says, everything can crumble around me, but I'm not going to look at the negative things. I'm going to focus on the better thing. I'm going to focus on the plan of God, the will of God, the presence of God, the strength of God, instead of focusing on the thing that become a negative burden for me to wear. What of David? David was crowned king, and yet he's running from Saul. We were able to visit the wilderness of En Gedi and see the exact places where David would have hit out as he is running from a tyrant called Saul. The anointing of God is on his life. He has already been anointed by Samuel, one of the key characters that are even in this particular story. Samuel is the offspring of Anna. David could have been bitter or he could have been better. In our exhortation today, we read scriptures from 
a psalmist that recognized and understood. I may run from cave to cave and I may not understand everything, but this one thing I know, God is walking with me and God is faithful in what I'm doing and he's going to be there in difficult times. I'm going to be better because of it. I'm going to come out of this better instead of becoming bitter. Bitterness will only drive you to a place where you can't get your head up and you're discouraged as Hannah was. But if you can recognize there is an opportunity to become better. God can use the circumstances in your life to elevate you and provide the things that you're looking for and you're desiring. We need to clap our hands this morning in the house of God and recognize and understand that God is faithful and he's sovereign and he knows where we are today. Which were they going to choose? Are they going to choose the right to be bitter or the right to be better? What did Hannah choose? 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 9. She rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord and she was in bitterness prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow. Listen to what she prayed. O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man child, then will I give him unto the Lord all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. He's going to dedicated to you. There are tragic effects of bitterness, and I want to point out two of them. The first is her bitterness of soul and her anguish colored her entire outlook on life. The Bible says that she was bitter, and she wept often, and she wouldn't eat because of the pain and anguish that she was suffering. She was downhearted. This became, this became the garment that she put on. The garment that she wore was a garment of being displeased and downhearted. In her prayer, she said that she was in misery. How tragic is it when we are so burdened that we are unable to experience the simple joys that enrich our lives? The right to be bitter is something that you get focused on and you fail to see all the other good things that are around you. It's like you have tunnel vision. You can only see the problem. You can't see anything else but the problem. When all around you, there's still opportunities to recognize God is enriching my life. And bitterness has taken that away. And so for Hannah, the first consequence of tragic effects of bitterness is she lost sight of all the other good things around her. I want us to reflect upon that just for a moment because every single one of us has different difficulties and, and struggles and the, there are things that, that could cause us anguish and, and problematic circumstances but if you lift your head up just a little bit you can recognize you know what I'm facing difficult things but God's still a God that brings blessing to me and mercy to me and faithfulness to me I can't get so focused on something that I've got tunnel vision and not see all the other things that God's doing around me many times we get so tunnel vision and focused 
focused that we, we think we're the only one that has the problem. We're the only one in anguish. We're the only one that is barren. There's other people having difficulties and struggles and problems. You're not the only one facing difficult things. I said, you're not the only one facing difficult things. There's other people sitting on church pews that have faced the same stuff, but somehow they recognize I've got a right to be bitter or a right to be bitter. I'm going to see the blessings of God in the midst of my turmoil. I'm going to see the goodness of God in the midst of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Praise God. We need to stand to our feet and thank God. Help us, O Lamb of God, to see the good things, the presence of God that we have even felt in the house of God today. I thank you for your anointing. I thank you for the blessings of God that I felt in this place when I walked through these doors. Praise God. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your faithfulness and the peace of God and the comfort of God. Praise God. In all my anguish and my difficulties, I'm not going to lose sight of that, but I'm going to praise you. Amen. Praise God. You can be seated. It colored her whole outlook on life. It obscured it obscured the simple joys that enrich our lives. Second, her depression was so great that she could not even recognize the evidences of God's grace. Hannah had no child, but she had a husband who loved her and who was sympathetic. It says, verse number four, when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Panina his wife and to all her sons and daughters portions. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion for he loved Hannah. He loved her. She couldn't see that. And so her depression obscured the evidence of God's grace. And we can see that, that Elkanah, <laughs> poor guy, he tries, one of the funniest lines that you're ever going to hear in Scripture is on Elkanah's lips as he tries to help her get some kind of understanding about God's grace and his goodness. In verse number 8, Elkanah, her husband, said to Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? <laughs> that is awesome. I know you want children, baby, but man, I'm better than ten kids. Am I not? tried he's trying so often we feel bitter and downcast and we are too unable to sense in the good gifts that God has given us the evidence of his love and his grace are you here today that's evidence that God is concerned about you being in the house of God do you have breath to breathe 
Because there are others that don't. The psalmist said, what am I going to do when the breath that I have is gone from me and I'm in Sheol or I'm in the grave? What he recognizes, I've got something very valuable. It's called breath. And the breath that I have means life. And the life that I have means worship to you and praise to you. I'm not going to get so discouraged that I forget to praise you with everything that is in me. It's evidence. It's evidence. Hannah's perspective was so totally colored by her personal tragedy that she could not sense the beauty, the good, or grace which God infuses every believer's life. I'm not downplaying the difficulties. I understand the difficulties. I've been there myself. Everybody's been there. No, no, nobody escapes from that. No matter how you try to make sure that you keep as long as you can the innocence of your children, and you should try to do your very best, at some point life is going to make a mark on them, and there is no way out of that situation. It falls on everybody, but help me, Lord. Help me to see the evidence of your mercy to me and your goodness to me and your miraculous healing to me. Help me to walk in the sanctuary and praise you with everything that I've got. Not coloring everything with the right to be bitter but coloring everything with the right to be better. Help me to give understanding to my family and my kids. You may be having problems but God's going to he's going to help you through this. He's going to carry you through this. effects of bitterness the right to be bitter or the right to be better finally in her bitterness Hannah takes two vital steps she takes two vital steps you have an opportunity to be bitter or you have an opportunity to be better man I've met some people that the root of bitterness that goes back years it's they're stuck it's like a repeating record. They can't see the good things. They can't see the good things of their family. They can't see the good things of success that God has helped them. It can only go back to something that, that hurt them, and it becomes a root of bitterness, and it's a right to be bitter, and it comes up, and it's like a revolving cycle. And I'm telling you, I'm humbly saying it here t t today, this morning. If that is the mentality that you have, and you constantly reiterate that and repeat that, it will bleed off of you into your children, and it will be a generational thing. Don't go down the road of, well, you don't understand what they did to me. I don't, I could not care less. That is past and over with. What are you going to do today? That's what's important. That's what's important. Everybody's got things that they're disheartened about. But, but what are you going to do today? If, if your past obscures the present and the future, you're, you're stunted. You're not going anywhere. You're not producing anything. You're just stuck in a rut. And then there's a ripple effect on you and everybody around you, and you fail to recognize what is so close to you. Ladies and gentlemen, can we in the house of God today make a commitment that I'm going to be better? I'm not going to be bitter going to be better and Hannah in her tragic steps of bitterness she, she took a couple right steps 
say, you don't understand what my mom did, what my dad did. You know what? If I lived in that world, I wouldn't even be here. It's very cliche when we say, if it had not been for the Lord, I don't know where would I, I would be. But in my own personal life, if it had to do with my mom or my father or things that they, I wouldn't be here. You know what I determined a long time ago? I am, I am not going to be like that. I could be bitter. I could be better. I'm, I'm going to be better. I'm not going to do those same things because I recognize the dysfunction in that. I don't want that. I want something better. I'm going to be the best father that I could ever be. I want to be the best husband that I could be. Do I measure up all the time? No, but I'm going to try. Instead of going back and grabbing bitterness and it controlling my present and my future. I'm going to be better. I'm going to try to be better every single day. Well, this is just the way that I am and I'm not going to change. You are a Misguided. We are always changing. You don't, you don't arrive somewhere and say, that's who I am and that's the way I'm going to be for the, the rest of my life. You're, you, you should be trying every single day to become better. Well, I'm 70 years old. I don't care, 70 years old. you got areas in your life you can become better. Well, I'm 80. You can be better. I visited with Sister Evie in the hospital today, 90 years old. What was she saying to the social worker? There's some things that I could do better. Well, that's just the way that I am, so I'm just stuck here. Then stay in a stuck world and never see any success out of anything. Your relationships, your career, your education. Well, it's really quiet, but I hope I'm nailing you right between the eyes this morning. You need to step up and say, I could be bitter. Or I could be better. I could wake up and say, I've got an opportunity today to be better. I find this sometimes in relationship counseling. Well, you know, that's just, I come from a family that was like this. So what? Change. Well, that was never modeled in front of me. Who cares? You start doing what you need to do. Model it in front of your family so things are corrected rather than just falling into the trap of doing the same stuff the same way. Get out of that vicious cycle and say, I have a great opportunity today to become better and I'm going to do it. This is how change takes place. Does the Holy Ghost come into our life to give to us a status existence? I'm just static. I got the Holy Ghost, and I'm just staying right here. No, the Holy Ghost is in our life to propel us, to influence us, to become more Christ-like. I'm going to say something that you're not going to like. If you say, I want to be Christ-like, I want to be Christ-like, the best place you could be Christ-like is in a marriage. Why? Because that person knows you better than anybody else. And they know your weaknesses, and they know your strengths, and they know all of that stuff, and they're with you 24-7, and they know who you are. They know how to push your buttons if they want to. And so sometimes in the midst of that, what you got to do is you got to follow the steps of Jesus. Jesus loved the church and gave his life for it. 
You say, I'm just staying static here. This is how I came into the world. I'm just going to be like this. Nothing's going to change. He took it all to Calvary. And he said, I'm going to nail these offenses to the cross. Why? Because I love what I'm going to inaugurate into a world. It's called a church. I'm going to give my life for it. And the church recognizes and understands and respects and affirms what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is why we worship the way that we worship is because we respect and value what he has richly done in our life. You say, you people are crazy. We're crazy because we respect what he has done. And until you accept what he has done and he starts working in your life, you're not going to understand why I leap for joy, why I lift my hands, why I magnify God, why I praise God. It's because I respect the work that he's done. And so what Hannah did, she took some vital steps. She took her bitterness to God. Come on, take it to God. There are some things you just have to take to God. Sometimes taking it to acquaintances and friends and folks. That's not always the best thing to do because sometimes they can be the one that provokes you to bitterness. Yeah, I know. That's the way it was. They shouldn't have done this. You should do this. You should do. You know what you need to tell them? Take it to God. Take it to an altar. I'm going to put a hand over my mouth and my opinions and, and, and all of that. And what I'm going to tell you is take it to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And watch him start work. Hannah recognized, you know what, I can live the rest of my life like this or I can take it to God. And so she took it to God. And secondly, in prayer, she began to reorder her priorities. Man, I'll tell you what happens when you get cancer in 2010 at the age of 40-something thinking you're in really good shape. And you got it all together, and you not only have one type of cancer, you have three types of cancer, and you go through all the chemotherapy and the radiation and all that stuff. It's nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. You know what you start doing? <laughs> you start prioritizing what really, really matters and what really doesn't matter. We get so focused on the minuscule, minor things, and we elevate those to major things. But when somewhere in life, health issues and things come against us, it gives to us an opportunity to reorder our priorities. And so Hannah started reordering the priorities. I want a child. I'm barren, but this is all about me. And finally she got to the point where she said, wait a minute, it's not about me. You can see this in her prayer. It's not about me wanting a child, but it's about me a child for your glory. And so her priorities changed. It's not about what I want, God. It's about what you want. And she said, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. I want an offspring. I'm barren, but I want a child to give it back to you. Not so that it stays with me so that I can look at my adversary and say, I now have a man child. But I'm going to say to God, if you give me something, I'm going to give it back to you. And he's going to be an individual that's going to work in your kingdom and for your glory and not my glory. And she made a commitment. I'm going to dedicate this son. And so she prayed to the Lord. She no longer wanted a child for herself, but she was looking beyond her own needs and she envisioned the good that meeting her need might do to others. God, make him a blessing to others. Samuel was 
a towering influence in Israel's history. One of the greatest individuals that was a prophet and a priest and a teacher that you could ever find in the annals of history. All because Hannah recognized it can't get stuck on me, but if somehow I can pray and reorder my priorities so that it becomes a blessing in your kingdom and in your glory. Her prayer was a desperate one, so heartfelt that her lips moved, but nothing came out. She was praying in her heart. And Eli, the high priest, he thought she was drunk, and so he comes to her and he rebukes her, thinking she was drunk. And she explained to him, I'm praying out of my anguish and my grief. And when she walked away from that experience, the Bible says, her face was no longer downcast because instead of the right to be bitter, she became a person that said, I want a right to be better. And she took it to God and she reordered priorities in her life. Barrenness in the scripture is an image of lifelessness where God's redemptive Blessings are just somehow absent. They're not there. There seems to be no hope. When Adam and Eve sinned, the fertility of his creation was cursed. The soil of the garden is producing thorns and thistles. It's, it's laborious to toil to yield food. And human fertility was cursed as childbearing became a painful and life-threatening event. Barrenness is all connected to an image in Scripture. The image of the barren wife is one of the Bible's strongest images of desolation and rejected rejection. We find this in Genesis with Sarah, with Rebecca, and with Rachel. And the classic case that we're examining today, this morning, is the case of Hannah. The New Testament example is Elizabeth. And in wisdom literature, one of the four things that are never satisfied is the barren womb. And so this image kind of covers the entire scripture. And yet somehow, through Hannah's prayer, we get a proper prioritization of how we should pro approach God with our difficulties. And that is, give it to God and then prioritize what really matters. This is about your glory and it's about your goodness. It's about a transformation that only God can do. Praise God. As we stand together this morning, we know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is there is something birthed in Hannah. She gives birth to a child by the name of Samuel. After three years, she brings it to the temple, the tabernacle in Shiloh to Eli, the priest. She brings it now. Listen. She entrusts Samuel to Eli. Eli and his sons, the light is fading in the ministry. Hophni and Phinehas, by their actions, are desecrating the worship of God. And Hannah has enough trust in God to say, I'll bring that which you birthed in me to a ministry that is severely lacking.
it's for your glory. And she prays another prayer and listen to what she says. My heart rejoices in the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My horn is an image and a structure of a horn on a beast or an animal. It's status and strength and ability. My horn is exalted. God has exalted me. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of mighty men are broken, and they that stumble are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased. So that the barren, this is Hannah speaking, so that which was barren, so that the barren hath borne seven. Seven is a sign of perfection in numerology. The one that was barren has now borne seven. God, you've done a perfect work. She that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust. He lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints. And the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. And he shall give strength unto his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. Praise God. What am I going to do? I'm going to choose either the right to be bitter or the right to be better. When you put your life in the hands of God for the right reasons, God elevates the hopeless. I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to pray the prayer of Hannah. God, whatever takes place, I want it to be for your glory. If I never have a child, it's for your glory. If I have a child, it's for your glory. But I'm bringing it to you, and I'm making sure my priorities are right because I know that you're a God. You're a God that brings low, and you're a God that lifts up. Praise God. You're a God that raises the poor out of the dust. You're a God that lifts up the beggar from the dunghill. You pick feet out of miry clay. You elevate the hopeless. Whether you receive what you expect or not, God somehow is going to turn the barrenness into fruitfulness. Praise God with uplifted hands here this morning. Praise God. Why don't you pray the prayer of Hannah? God, I'm bringing it to you today. I'm going to set my priorities in the proper perspective and in the proper place today. Got a right to be bitter. All of us face circumstances or the right to be better. I want you to elevate something in me that is better. Praise God. I want you to turn the barrenness into something that is fruitfulness. I want you to bring strength and anointing. I thank you, Lord, and praise you. I praise you. I praise you. Praise God in the house of God today as they prepare to sing. 
I wonder if there's somebody that would like to pray the prayer of Hannah today. Praise God. In Shiloh, a place for 369 years, Tabernacle was established as an opportunity to bring a prayer to God that says, God, no matter what happens and no matter what the circumstance is, I want it to be for your glory. I want it to be for your glory. Praise God. Why don't you step out of a pew where you are? You feel that way. Praise God. You feel there's a barrenness in your spirit. You feel there's a barrenness. God's a God that can bring fruitfulness to you and strength to you. He brings redemption. He brings hope. Oh, Lamb of God, that you walk with me and that you love me. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. I give to you a heart of thanksgiving today. Praise me. Worship to you. Hallelujah. 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 You're so good. You're so good. Help me to see your faithfulness, Lord. 